Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Premier Crew podcast. We're delighted today to be joined by Tom Harrow. Tom has had a varied and illustrious career in the wine trade, having written regularly for columns in the Financial Times, <clears throat> How to Spend It, and also The Yacht Investor. He's held a number of ambassadorial positions for brands across drinks, hospitality, supercars, private aviation, and tailoring services, hence the suit today. <laughs> and on top of wine consulting and also event organization, Tom is the co-founder of Honest Grapes, which is an award-winning online wine retailer. Um, we're very fortunate today. We've got a really cool episode. Tom is essentially going to take us through Honest Grapes, Burgundy en primeur campaign for the 2022 vintage. We're going to start by providing an introduction to Burgundy as a wine region overall. Then we're going to be looking at uh, an overview of the 2022 vintage, followed by buying wine en primeur and why you as listeners and consumers should certainly look to do that. Uh, in amongst all this, we've got three wines that we're going to be trying today. So white and two reds. They're not the 2022 vintage, but they will all be available to buy as part of the campaign. Before we get stuck into that, Tom, thank you for coming on the podcast. Good to see you. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Thank you for having me, chaps. It's a pleasure to be here. It's nice and cozy here, cold outside. So yeah. uh, <laughs> chilly day, chilly day. Yeah, good way to start Thursday morning. So thanks for having me. Good. No, pleasure, pleasure. Well, I think we're going to get um, stuck into it fairly quickly. Hugo is going to talk to you about Burgundy as a wine region. We want to get stuck into, you know, give everyone an overview of what it is and, you know, what to expect from, from wines from Burgundy. Before we do that, we're going to try our first wine, which is the Aligote. And we want to talk to you essentially about why you decided to choose this wine and also why this grape variety. Because most people think of white burgundy as Chardonnay and they're probably right for doing that because it counts for, for most of production. So, yeah, tell us why you bought this wine. Yeah, you're absolutely right. When we, it's about the only um, straightforward thing in burgundy tends to be the grape varieties. Mm -hmm. you know, it, it pretty much is Chardonnay for whites and Pinot Noir for reds. However, one of the perhaps dubious benefits of climate change is the rise of Aligote. Mm. So in these warmer years, of which 2019, 18 before it, 20, and the 22 campaign we're about to launch are all examples of solar vintages, although they have different expressions of the heat. But one thing that's abundantly clear in these vintages especially is that Aligote gets fully ripe and becomes really quite interesting and exciting. And it also coincides with uh, a movement that sees the region of the, the Haute Cote, mm -hmm. so outside of the classic Cote d'Or, which I guess we'll come on to in a bit, but the rise of the Haute Cote. So wines from growers from a region which was perennially in the shade, quite literally in a way, mm -hmm. is now becoming very, very interesting, exciting wines. So I, I wanted to show you something interesting, something a bit different, something which for me represents the new wave of Burgundy. And this particular wine is from a dear friend from uh, Laurent Delaunay, mm -hmm. from Maison Delaunay. And would you like to taste it first before I just chunter on endlessly about it? Or, yeah, um, yeah, let's give it a taste. Let's give it a taste. I'll uh, just whilst you guys are tasting it, I, I actually just had a sip and, a, and a, a smell. So most of the Aligote I've had previously has been pretty lean, I'd say. Mm. And, you know, it's properly green fruit uh, and seriously acidic, if, if I'm honest. 
Uh, so when when you... <laughs> don't, don't don't mention any producer names there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. So when 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 uh, you suggested getting an aligote on, I was thinking in my head, okay, this will be interesting. Um, but this is quite different. It's actually really rich, uh, and I wasn't actually expecting it to to be mm. that way. What 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 is it that's made it like? That? So it's a few things. So firstly, um, Laurent, the, the winemaker, um, uh, fascinating individual. You know, he he's very passionate about this grape but also the oak coat. And this is Allegote Dore, so golden Allegote. And you can see these tight bunches. They just, they just look very juicy and ripe. It's a quite a high site, about 450 metres up, which I think mm. makes it one of the most elevated sites in Burgundy. And it gets a lot of sun, but obviously it's, it's very cool in the evening. So that would tend to give you ripeness during the day, but ensure a certain kind of steeliness, raciness, because the acidity is preserved. However, you're absolutely right. Typically, Aligote was a bit lean and green and, dare I say, a paint strippery, and hence mm. you tended to find it really as the base for a uh, Kia. You know? mm. um, whereas this, I think, is arguably the best example of the grape where you're getting more more flesh, more richness, more supple fruit. Firstly, they they do quite a lot of um, uh, lees stirring. It's also aged in barrels as well, and it just broadens it out, fattens it out a bit, mm. gives a bit more richness and texture on the mid-palate. You've also got the benefit of the vintage here as well. So this is 2020. We, we love the 2019, mm-hmm. um, but it was a touch leaner it wasn't as full whereas the 2020 because it was such a hot year you've really got a lot of very ripe fruit here Mm. so i'd say the combination of a great site that gets lots of sunlight combination of very ripe fruit and the combination of a winemaking process which encourages uh some some lees stirring batonage and oak aging just really makes it a lot richer waxier and frankly more exciting more ample, more generous than most Aligote we, we tend to think of. At the same time, what's super important is you've still got that raciness. You've still mm-hmm. got that good acidity, that crunchiness at the core, which means it's very, very digestible. Sure, sure. A really like exceptional value pick for upcoming campaign. <clears throat> I think for people looking at it, we, we, we looked this morning, but it, it retails for about £20, £22, something like that. Um, you know, if you're snapping that up, you know, on release, going to be going to be a bit cheap in that. I think if you were looking for you know a good value pick, it's, you know, probably but one of the reasons why you, why you yeah. bought it today as well. I think it represents that so well. Yeah, and again, you know, like to show something a bit different, and I, I really think that uh, Laurent and his team are pushing the boundary. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's great to show their philosophy in action because yeah. you know you can talk about how great the oak coat is, you can talk about Aligote, but if the wines not terribly exciting, then it doesn't really prove the point. But I, I think this is just a tremendous wine. It's also named, the name uh, Professor Foyat is named after Laurent's uh, enology professor at school. So it's like a tribute to him, which I think is rather nice. Adds to the narrative. Yeah. Mm. I think a nice uh, touch is if I was trying tasting that blind, I wouldn't, necess- I wouldn't know where to go. And that normally means someone's doing something slightly different, uh, which, is, which is really cool. All our listeners as well, um, the Delaunay estate or domain, whatever you want to call it, um, also do some, have uh, vines in some fantastic sites, Charme, Chambretin, uh, you know, the whole works, Merceau's, I think there's even a Montrachet in there. Um, 
So, you know, if you're looking to explore, this is a great entry point, but they, they do the whole works if you're interested. Um, we're starting to get into names that are now, you know, beyond Aligote, uh, getting a bit burgundy villagey. So let's go into Burgundy. Um, so taking it right from the top, where is Burgundy in France? <laughs> it's a good question. <laughs> so Burgundy really, is, is it helpful to say sort of from Algerre in the north down to not quite Lyon in the south? Um, I think it is, yeah. Yeah. It, it's roughly, it's in the centre of France, yeah. slightly to the east. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a pretty good way of looking at it. <laughs> yeah. um, there's no coastal Burgundy, put it that way, you know. No. Um, yeah, it's it's quite a long region and it, it varies quite dramatically in terms of the soil type. So it's no wonder that people who love Puy-Fumé, Sancerre from the Loire, often love Chablis. Different grape, but the regions themselves are really quite close. And also you've got the same uh, very, very chalky soil as well under both. And I think that's an important thing to bear in mind with Burgundy, perhaps more than any other region, is this notion of terroir, which is a little bit ineffable sometimes, but I think is fundamentally bound up with soil type, geology, uh, mineralogical strata, and nowhere is it more intense and more varied than across Burgundy. And it's why you know, when we were talking about uh, Aligote rather than Chardonnay, it's why the grapes seem to be the least important thing in Burgundy, because really they are nothing more than the vehicle for the transmission of terroir. So you never really see Pinot Noir or Chardonnay on anything but the more entry-level sort of Bourgogne Blanc, Bourgogne Rouge, because everyone, no one really cares about the grapes. It's, it's all about the individual regional specificity of each wine and that's what burgundy does so well but also it's 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 quite confusing you know there's a lot of small regions from as we said north uh chablis right the way down to uh beaujolais right down in the south and yeah it's 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 quite a minefield for the consumer so breaking down the simple points then because there are a couple of simple things so grape varieties Typically, if you're getting a white wine, it's Chardonnay. Yeah. If you're getting a red wine, uh, it's Pinot Noir. Yeah. Um, if you were giving someone an introduction, say, what would a typical white burgundy, although I think we've already just discussed, there isn't such a thing as a typical, but typical white burgundy made from Chardonnay, what are sort of the core characteristics you typically see? Yeah, that's a fair question. Um, you would typically expect to see in, let's say, a vintage which was not extreme. So either not super, super cool or super, super hot, although we seem to be getting more and more of the latter, you would expect to see quite a lot of European orchard fruit character, apples, pears in particular. You would hope to see some uh, meadow blossom white flower character as well, probably some spice notes and then depending on the wood treatment, probably some sort of flaky pastry kind of character, patisserie notes as well. I tend to find often uh, a light kind of cinnamon note as well. And then really, if you get a, a riper vintage, you'd expect slightly more baked apple, perhaps character verging on the tropical, a touch more kind of peach, papaya, even a touch of mango. Um 
And, uh, you know, again, if the wine shows more substantial use of oak, you'd probably get a bit more uh, toasty character, a bit more sort of um, nutty, toasted hazelnut character as well. But I, I think the key thing is that behind all of that, you should expect some good, vibrant acidity to keep the wine lively and, and, and also a sense of sort of stony minerality as well, which makes it, you know, hopefully definably burgundy. And this, this one's going to be even harder because I think perhaps more so than Chardonnay, Pinot Noir is one that the variation is, <clears throat> for the consumer, feels tough. But a standard sort of Burgundy Pinot Noir, if that's even possible, um, mm-hmm. what are some of the core characteristics someone could expect? Well, that, that is interesting and, and perhaps a little trickier because I think, I think vintage variation becomes more apparent sometimes with Pinot Noir, specifically because uh, the ripeness profile, both on the nose and on the palate, will, will alter slightly from blue fruit through to red fruit through to black fruit. So you can, you can sort of tell the, the, the not so much less ripe vintages, but the less overripe vintages, shall we say, where I think the fruit profile should always be in the red bracket maybe accented by a little black fruit, uh, a little blue fruit. But really, you would hope that cool climate, Pinot Noir, should be in that red berry, uh, red currant character, red cherry particularly. And, and that would be the core thing I'd be looking for on a, on, a, on a red burgundy. And then it all starts to get a bit more sight and soil dependent. Perhaps if there's more clay in the soil, You'd get one uh, sort of uh, palate profile tends to be maybe a, a little richer, slightly heavier in some respects. Where you get limestone, which is what we get very excited about generally, you tend to get slightly purer uh, aromas. Um, you get a, a, a sense of real tension on the palate. Again, this is a bit of a generalization, to be honest, but I think that the combination of sort of red fruit, hopefully some maybe violets, or, or as we found particularly in vintages like 2019 and 22, this real uh, prevailing note of rose petals kept coming up, which was lovely. And, and then maybe some sort of sandalwood, cedary character, um, alongside a touch of cigar box, you'd maybe get some baking spices too, uh, some earthiness, um, maybe a touch of smoke. Again, especially when you've got soils which have a bit more um, iron in them, you get this kind of ferrous note as well. But I think overall, as I said, I'd, I'd go with, you know, you're looking at the red fruit spectrum and some interesting sort of earthy herbal spice nuances around them. Okay. <clears throat> We've done with the simple stuff. <laughs> now, let's, now let's get into what this is all about, which is, as you said, these grapes are a sort of vehicle for terroir. If we were to do Burgundy very simply, uh, I'll just kick off for the quick intro. There's probably three main blocks. You start from north to south with the Cote de Nuit, which is predominantly known for very fine red wine from Pinot Noir. You then come to the Cote de Bone, which is got predominantly known for very fine white wine, though there are also some great reds produced there in Volnay, Pomard and Corton. And then you've got the third block, which is the Cote Chalonnet, which is great value, I'd say. Red and white is stereotypically perhaps what it's known for. Let's go from north to south. So start with the Cote de Nuit. What are sort of the principal villages there within the Cote de Nuit? And what are the different styles of the wines that they're producing? Yeah, so 
Uh, one thing to point out... And Tom, I'm going to challenge you that yeah. you have to be relatively quick. <laughs> <laughs> okay. In which, case, in which case, I would say that, um, firstly, one thing to bear in mind throughout the code door, which encompasses code de nuit and code de bone, is that the villages take their name from the most famous vineyard within that region. Hence, in the north, we have gevry Chambertin, which really takes its name from Chambertin, the most famous vineyard in the region. As we work our way south, we find the same thing in chambon musigny Musigny being the most famous Grand Cru. Um, one, well, Maurice-Saint-Denis, uh, you have Clos-Saint-Denis. Um, Nuit-Saint-Georges, one exception to the rule, isn't a Grand Cru, but still takes its name for the most famous vineyard, which is Les Saint-Georges. And you can see that as well as we head down into Côte de Bonne. Maybe we'll touch on that in a bit. So, Gévry-Chambertin. There's that great line from Hilaire Belloc where he says, I, I can't remember the girl, I can't remember the date, but I remember the wine was Chambertin. And for many people, you know, this is the quintessential Burgundy. It's, uh, it's quite muscular. It's, it's definitely got this sort of powerful brooding character. It should be red fruits, but again, in the, um, in the hotter years, more dark fruit character comes in, more earth, more spice, and definite kind of truffle notes. And, you know, that, that's really, for many people, the heart of, of the Côte de Nuit. Chambon Musigny tends to be, I suppose, in old style uh, language, the, the, the feminine side of the more masculine chevrolet. I think there are, you know, that's a bit of an outmoded trope these days, but there are probably better ways to describe Chambon. But certainly you tend to look for wonderful perfume in Chambon. Chambol and Volney have kind of comparisons across the Côte de Nuit and the Côte de Bone. So wonderful perfume, great aromatics, very elegant wines indeed. Maurice and Denis is a slightly hidden village, I think, and therefore always somewhere we're quite keen on snuffling around in finding <laughs> sort of, you know, <laughs> great various value. Trips. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and I think Moro has this slightly kind of wild aspect to it, this sort of, you know, uh, I remember writing a tasting note for Moro Sandini Premier Crew, which is like, you know, Pan running through a forest playing his pipes. And, you know, this, this, <laughs> it's got this slightly kind of, you know, arboreal, wild nature to the wines. Very exciting. And... Um, Nuit Saint-Georges. Nuit Saint-Georges, I think, is kind of would definitely be the, um, the region which gets uh, kind of most improved in the Côte de Nuit in recent years. And, and not least because the, the slightly rustic, at times chunky tannins have definitely softened and smoothened out. The, the, the riper years, the warmer years are exposing perhaps less favourable aspects, which are now getting full ripeness and getting some of the elegance of their famous neighbour, uh, Von Romanet. So Von Romanet really, again, for, for purists, is another heartland for, for, for Burgundy. And once An again, expensive one, albeit. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, it, you know, cheap, cheap Von Romanet doesn't really exist, sadly. But the wines are, are exceptional. You've got this incredible concentration of Grand Cru's uh, around uh, around La Romane, and and the wines have this um, wonderful balance of 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 power and intensity, but rarely density. So they're quite light on their feet, and again, great kind of aromatic, aristocratic aromas. In fact, they're stunning, stunning kit. We could go on on the yeah. Côte de Nuit and I, du Clos-Bougeau, but <laughs> I think that might be that that might be one of the best sort of five minute introductions <laughs> to the Côte de Nuit. I understand so. 
you've passed that test. The next one then is the Cote de Bone. Yeah. Um, similar sort of exercise, just to give people a sense of the main villages uh, from sort of north to south and what's going on, the styles of wines and what people can expect. So really, Cote de Bone whites, and, and, you're, and you're right to focus on whites, you know, are, are you know, it's the, sort of the best, the greatest Chardonnay in the world comes from the vineyard of and the vineyards around Le Morichet. And back to our earlier point about the villages taking the name of the most famous vineyard, you've got Le Morichet, amazing vineyard, and either side of it are the villages of Chassin Morichet and Puligny Morichet. And typically, one would have said that Chassin Morichet has the finest fruit and probably makes the more accessible style. Um, they're, they're very lovely, very well balanced. And Puligny tends to be more uh, mineral driven, more stony. I think these days it's very much producer led, although there are certain vineyards where you do get recognizably more Chassin style and more Puligny style. Then, of course, you've got Merceau which has really changed out of all recognition, I'd say, in the last 20 years or so. Typically, Merceau had slightly heavier, maybe slightly damper soils, and the style of wine was uh, waxier, richer, not as elegant, more concentrated. But a new generation of producers are making much leaner, uh, more chiselled, racier styles of Merceau, which are super, super attractive. So those are the three main villages, really, Merceau, Puligny Morichet and Chassin Morichet. Yeah. And then there are a couple, because the only reason I want to touch on these, <clears> just <throat> a little bit further north, because we're going to come on to try a Volnay. Mm. The only other two that were probably we, alongside the Hill of Corton, which is slightly too complicated to even get stuck into. But the other red sort of villages within the Cote de Bona, Volnay and Pommard, just a word on those two as well, just so that we've got one of these wines covered, which is a fantastic example. Yeah, absolutely. Um it's 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 been really exciting charting the progress of pomard over the last 10 years because pomard was perhaps uh, a little bit like Louis Saint-Georges in the Côte de Nuit tended to have the reputation at least for making wines that are a bit more four square the tannins weren't necessarily as sophisticated and and yet that's really changed and a lot of that is due climate change and you're getting much more supple wines more uh, aromatically complex wines pomard has been a, a real beneficiary of of climate change it has to be said and and a number of them are becoming more volney like in their elegance so we touched on volney previously just in terms of comparing it to chambord musigny in the north and you know volney has this just glorious perfume and hopefully we'll see with the with wine we're going to be trying in a bit. You'll see there's there's this this wonderful florality to the wine, this kind of sweet herb, sweet spice character. The the wines of Volnay are, are, are truly delicious as well. You did mention Corton, and yeah, Corton is a big beast in, in every <laughs> sense, you know, and it's got multiple um, exposures pretty much all around the hill. So you get very, very different styles of wines from the hill, dependent on where they are on the slope whether at the top or near the bottom, whether they are south-facing or east-facing. And, yeah, we could easily do a whole session on the wines of Corton, maybe next time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Corton deep dive coming your way soon. Um, I have a real soft spot for Volnay, which is why I also wanted to get in there. I think my favourite uh, Burgundy moment is with the Volnay. Um, so, yeah, for me, it's like that. that's that's really where like my memory goes back to every time I think of it. Um, the final block then, 
is the coach Chalonet. Hmm. And this is where, you know, people can probably find the best value. Um, just talk us through maybe some of the main villages there uh, and give us a little overview. Yeah. Finding value in Burgundy, uh, which is the subject of our, our tasting coming up on the 23rd, getting an early plug in, but um, <laughs> is, is, is absolutely one of the biggest challenges, which I think any wine commentator, critic, merchant uh, has. And there's no denying that there's huge rewards to be found in the Chalonnais. So uh, Mercury, for example, uh, Givry, uh, Rui, really making some tremendous whites and reds. And it's, it's sometimes difficult when you find a great producer to uh, encourage people to then go back <laughs> to the Cote mm. d'Or because they're like, well, I'm incredibly happy with this. You get, you get wonderful wines now, which again, Perhaps it's generational change. Perhaps it's, frankly, just the rising prices of Burgundy elsewhere. But the overall quality is just shooting up and up every year. And you're getting wines which have more balance, have a greater purity of fruit and uh, more complexity. And, and I think perhaps some older vines as well coming into play. But it's, an, it's a region which is very well worth exploring yourself, both tasting and visiting, because it's um it's it's a real it's a real hidden gem for sure. Yeah. It's so true. Um some of the best, I think, uh <clears throat> or most exciting burgundies we've had recently have been from the Coach Chalonnais. Uh, we had a Guffin's Henyon that was just, you know, ex- exceptional. I also had a Jean-Marc Vincent recently. Really, really good. Um so yeah, I'd highly advise that. And what's super exciting for everyone listening is that I know you've already done a slight small plan. <laughs> But we're doing, um, or Honest Grapes are doing uh, Value Villages of Burgundy Tasting on the 23rd of January. Um, so on the link tree in our social media, you'll be able to find a link to that tasting if you want to join. Um, but it is especially important because I've got a good fact for everyone that since I think it's 2010 to 2020, the LiveX index for Burgundy, the Burgundy 150, has gone up 140%. The whole fine wine market in that time has gone up 40%. So price increases in Burgundy have gone through the roof. Finding value is really, really difficult. What would be your advice to consumers looking to purchase Burgundy in that environment? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a challenging time and a good question. I think there are a few options. One thing that we do as a merchant and others as well is we, we try and find the growers and also the specific vineyards that are next to the already well-established names. And you try and pick those up at the beginning of their trajectory. So there's nothing more exciting than finding these little uh, Lourdes, so like a, a named vineyard, which isn't a premier crew, but it's like tucked up right in the corner of um, some great vineyards. A good example, uh, I was hosting a tasting just last week, maybe it was in this week. I can't remember. We just blow out this time of year. But yeah, exactly. Busy, busy with where, all those where, where we were, I was showing off a Puligny Montrachet from a producer we work with, uh, Alain Chavi, and it's a great vineyard called uh, Charm. And it's a little lieu d tucked up right on the Merceau border, right next to Merceau Premier Cru Charm, one of the top Merceau Premier Cru vineyards, and right just beneath uh, Puligny. Montrachet, Les Refaires, Premier Cru. So it's tucked up right in the corner between those two vineyards. And it's about, well, 
about half the price of, of wines from those two premier crews. So this is a strategy to follow for perhaps the more knowledgeable Burgundy enthusiasts, or at least the person who's got more time to go and do their <laughs> research, yeah. is to try and find these little amazing vineyards um, from growers, which are tucked up next to the far more expensive names. The other option, of course, I think is to find a trusted merchant, you know, and, um, you know, it's, it's quite important when looking at your, your wine buying budget to recognize that if you want to get involved with Burgundy, then, you know, there are no cheap options. There are no cheap options. However, there are some wonderful uh, new and up and coming producers. As I mentioned, there's also exciting generational change. And that means that growers who've been sat on amazing vineyards, but haven't necessarily always got the best out of them, are now starting to do that. So I think keeping abreast of, of generational change uh, amongst domain is, is, is very important. And, and just generally tasting as much as you can, as frequently as you can. I've said as long as I can remember, and I remember saying this 23 years ago, if you find a burgundy you like, at a price point you can afford, then you should load up the trucks because you never know whether you're going to like the next vintage as much and you never know if you'll be able to get it or if the price will, you know, have gone up by 10, 20, 30%. So yeah, find it and buy it when you see it. So one of your tips is one that we're going to look at later in the episode, but <coughs> there is a cool thing with this Volnay that we're going to try later in the episode, whereby this is a bit of a hidden gem because some of their grapes go to very, very esteemed producers, correct? I mean, if I'm wrong, you'll know that in more detail than I will. But yeah, of course, this is the 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 thing in Burgundy now is that they they almost can't get enough fruits. You know, the demand is huge, and and you look at Burgundy production; it's tiny, it's really really small. And so there are some illustrious domains who are buying in fruit uh, to augment their own um, their own holdings. Of course, you also find a number of producers, one of whom we'll come on to in a bit, uh, Jane Eyre, part of the micro-negotiant movement where it's very, very hard to buy any vineyards at all because no one wants to sell them when they do. They're horrendously expensive. So there's a lot of fruit being bought. There's a lot of contracts with um, with growers and domains so that you can effectively work certain plots and take the fruit. And, you know, you're, you're definitely seeing, you're definitely seeing a lot more uh, growers now who uh, they're not actually growing. <laughs> they're, 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 they're looking after other people's fruit and they're, they're buying fruit in themselves. And that's quite an important commercial relationship that's really developing in Burgundy, especially for the new generation. Yeah. So that you've teed up the second one perfectly. Let's move on to the Jane Eyre. So this is a Beaujolais. It's from a crew site called Fleury. Uh, and Jane Eyre's the producer. I think the vintage is 2021? 21, yeah. Is that correct? Um, Tom, just give us a, a lowdown. Because some people wouldn't include uh, Beaujolais in their sort of frame of reference for Burgundy. Can you just run us through why you selected this wine for the episode today? Absolutely. And yes, it's it's it does... Or it can be the case that people forget Beaujolais is part of Burgundy and increasingly important part of Burgundy for various reasons, not least of which, again, is value. And, and also the quality of Beaujolais has really, really improved dramatically over the last 15 plus years. I think Beaujolais, 
for a certain generation uh, has the uh, connotations, the association with Beaujolais Nouveau. And for some people, they can't really get beyond that, which is a shame. There's nothing wrong with Beaujolais Nouveau. It's good fun. It's fruity. It's immediate. Uh, it's crunchy. It's, it's, it's perfectly entertaining wine. But it's completely different from what we're drinking from Cru Beaujolais. And Cru Beaujolais remains just superb value from great, great producers. It's also interesting. Another grower we work with, um, Philippe Pacolet, says that back in his, um, in his father's day, it's only his grandfather's day, land down in Beaujolais was, expense, was as expensive as, as Verne Romanet. And he owns a plot in uh, Moulavant, which I think was more expensive than La Romanet at the time, you know, back in the <laughs> 50s. So it's, it's, really, it's really only the more recent rise to the north which has seen Beaujolais slightly disappear into the shade. But in recent years, I think there's a lot of change there. And you get great producers like Jane, who can make some incredible wines from Fleury. Fleury is typically known as the, the queen of Beaujolais, perhaps, mm-hmm. if in as much as it's got these wonderfully sort of floral, intense floral aromas, um, wonderful freshness, sweet fruit. Uh, this wine is from largely from um, uh, a site called uh, Laberon, which is one of the top, top vineyard sites in Fleury. Uh, here, the soil is more granitic. So we've not got the same sort of limestone soils that you find further north. Uh, more granitic soil. But that lovely, deep cherry nose, kind of touch of pastel. But, but also, it betrays some of the uh, cool nature of the 21 vintage so unlike the 2020 Alligotto we started with and the 19 Volnay that we'll finish with, both of which were variously hot solar years, I mentioned, 21 was certainly a, a cooler vintage. So you get a bit more of that blue fruit character. Obviously, the grape here is gra- Gamay, so we've moved away from Pinot Noir. But you get this lovely kind of crunchy, crunchy fruit, um, very fresh, very lively, nice spice notes. Also, for... <clears throat> You know, thinking about food pairings, drinking this in restaurants, it's such a versatile grape because, you know, you you could have this starters, mains, meat, even fish, you know, it's kind of got the whole whole works going for it. And I I think uh, for a younger generation as well, Beaujolais is seriously, seriously popular, partly because of the growth of the sort of natural wine movement, whatever Mm. you want to call that. Mm. But it's now super popular. And I think it's wines like this that make you realise why. Yeah, isn't that gorgeous? I mean, to be fair, on a on a fairly drich December day, it probably wouldn't be your first choice. Yeah. But I mean, on a on a you know any time really from you know March, April onwards through to October, when it's slightly warmer, you know this lightly chilled, <coughs> as you say, hugely versatile food wine, very very um, very friendly, very gluggable. This is twelve and a half percent as well. So, but but you know, despite the relatively middling um, alcohol. No shortage of intensity or flavour, great aromas. It's just a really delicious wine. Mm, mm. Yeah, I th- it's certainly agree. Yeah, super drinkable, as you say, 12.5%. Yeah, mm. very easy going. Um, and lovely, lovely cherry fruit on the nose. And also on the palate, it actually comes through very, very strongly as well. Um, even more so. <clears throat> what, we, uh, what we want to talk to, you, uh, talk to you about, Tom, as well, is the, the 2022 vintage for Burgundy. Just before we sort of get on to that, um, you're just explaining uh, in regards to this wine about vintage variation uh you know uh vintages are always obsessed over by um you know wine critics and wine enthusiasts and lovers 
sort of, you know, with, in regards to many regions, but you have to say Burgundy is probably the sort of the most sort of, you know, the forefront of that, where people really, really do take the vintage part to really try and understand why the wine is the way it is. Why is that the case with Burgundy than perhaps more so other, other regions? Yeah, good question. The, the thing with Burgundy is it is fundamentally a marginal climate. So it, it can really vary. You know, uh, it can really vary. There are wine regions around the world where you don't get so much variation. So perhaps the, the uh, variability of style and perhaps quality is less, uh, less obvious. With Burgundy, one thing I would say, although vintage is endlessly talked about and discussed and dissected, for me, it's less important when it comes to buying. So I find that Bordeaux, for example, people are very vintage-led in terms of whether they buy, whereas Burgundy... Because they've heard the hype of 16 yeah. amazing, yeah. got to get it now, price is going to go up, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. As opposed to 13, maybe not so much. So you know, Not at all not in go. case of Bordeaux. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, um, I was being kind. <laughs> but, but actually, well, there's a good point. I mean, if you look at the difference, I, I have far more Burgundy... 13 in my cellar and our clients uh, happily piled into 13 in Burgundy it was more challenging vintage but it leads to my point that with Burgundy you buy based on growers and you support growers throughout and vin different vintages show different facets of a particular site mm -hmm. and often these cooler vintages like in 21 what you see is a more immediately obvious translation of the terroir, which can be masked in a very hot year. There are very few Burgundy growers, for example, who look back fondly on, say, 2003, because the heat masks the subtleties of the vintage. So vintage is very important in Burgundy. And often, however, it's, it's not just as obvious as saying, oh, it was a hot year, it was a cool year. A lot of what we talk about with vintage is weather incidents and they can be quite localized you know you can get hail that really badly affects a small number of sites uh, on a certain number of days you can get frosts that's been a, a a recurrent problem in recent vintages in burgundy in particular is late spring frosts uh, as as you know the vines are really starting to develop frosts come in and you know wipe everything out and it's, it's pretty disastrous so you know where we get obsessive with vintages is as much about the extremes that occur as the overall nature of the vintage. Because one thing we're definitely seeing is that both vines themselves and also the winemakers are adapting to increasing um, global warming. But what you can't really mitigate against is, you know, a, a June or July hailstorm that comes in with, you know, golf ball sized size stones and wipes out, you know, an entire hectare of vines like that. Um, but, you know, really, it's been a long time, a long, long time since I can think of a burgundy vintage where there wasn't an attractive wine to buy. Mm -hmm. There are perhaps, perhaps it's fair to style vintages between the solar vintages and the cooler vintages. And perhaps there are some people who prefer a richer, riper, warmer style of wine and might be drawn, therefore, to these hotter years. And then there are people who prefer a cooler, fresher style, would be drawn to the cooler vintages. However, 22, if we can turn to 22. Yeah, yeah absolutely. 
really has defied expectation. And um, because we knew it was a hot year and, and we knew that there were heat spikes um, and we were expecting when, when we were out tasting last month, we were expecting to taste the heat in the wines, both white and red. And it, it wasn't there. It's not to say the wines weren't ripe. They were beautifully ripe. They were perfectly ripe. But you didn't get uh, the, this kind of weight and over-richness that you sometimes get with the hot years. There was just this glorious balance with the wines. And in some respects, and it's what makes wine so fascinating, is you often ask producers, so what did you do? Oh, how, 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 why are the wines like this? And there's often a bit of a shrug of the shoulders. And I, I love <laughs> the fact that you, you can't explain everything scientifically, that sometimes, yes. sometimes vines <clears throat> just achieve a natural balance and the fruit that results makes wines which are very harmonious. And that's probably a descriptor which I found myself using a lot with the 22 vintage, both whites and reds, was mm -hmm. harmonious balance the wines have achieved a very easy charm you know and that's not to say that it's a light vintage i think there's good matier there's good structure and weight behind these wines but they are they're just really very very drinkable sure and producers were presumably a bit more optimistic rather than cautious when you were out there only a few weeks ago discussing with them then? Well, they were delighted because yeah. for two reasons, the quality, absolutely, but also the quantity. So 22 is yes. a decent size vintage and 23 is a very large vintage. Right. So compared to visiting Burgundy this time last year when you know we had the 2020 and the 21 vintages in the cellar, 2020 was a small vintage mainly because of the drought. So funnily enough, a reasonable harvest, quite a few berries, but not so much juice in them. And then 21, as I mentioned earlier, was really plagued by some pretty, well, some absolutely devastating frosts. So just the volumes have been very, very down. Mm. Um, 22, a sizable, decent crop, and 23, a very, very big crop. So we saw lots of smiles on the faces of lots of winemakers, which was nice. Then, of course, you've got, you know, really impressive quality as well. Yeah, there's a lot to be, lot to be thankful for. Could we, uh, could we be thankful for prices this year if volumes are up and you're saying with the same with 2023? Or would that be going a, a step too far? What's your view on that? Well, it's a bit too early to say, to sure. be perfectly honest. I, I, would, I would say that we're just starting to see allocations filtering in from different maisons and domains. And there's certainly some indication of pricing stability, which is, you know, uh, very, very attractive and, uh, and uh, uh, very agreeable, I have to say. At the same time, a number of costs have gone up for growers, uh, a number of whom are also trying to recoup some of the losses for losing maybe 50, 60, 70% yes. of their volumes in the previous vintage. So uh, I hope that for the sake of the market and consumers, the prices will retain an element of stability. I think at the moment, it's a bit too early to see if everyone's going to respond accordingly. But we're, we're pretty hopeful that... Uh, that it will be an attractive vintage for people to sure. jump in and buy. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's 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 good news, I guess. Good news. And uh, are there any, when you're out there, <clears throat> a few weeks ago, trying all the wines, are there any particular um, villages that you think really excelled? Um, and if so, why? Yeah. Casting my mind back, there, there were certainly, there were certainly some high points, although... 
I'd have to say, you know, you're, you're always going to be wary of, of thinking a vintage is homogenous. It never is. But there were some amazing wines throughout. Um, I have to say one, one region which particularly impressed me this year was Corton. Um, obviously at the, at the upper, at the upper end of the spectrum, but sometimes Corton reds, that is, you know, have maybe been seen as the sort of junior Grand Cru in the Pantheon, but actually there were some fantastic Cortons, which had real complexity and real balance. Um, so I, I think that was, that was very impressive. Once again, Pomard, superb, Rue Saint-Georges, superb, um, we 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 tried some some very nice Chambord Musigny as well. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you know some some lovely perfumes there. So I think uh, I'm trying to think of any major surprises. We we did, I have to say, try wines from a producer new to us who we are incredibly excited to introduce into the UK from Sontenay. In fact, uh, based in Sontenay and. Uh, about Premier Crew White and Red, which were absolutely knockout. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's always exciting seeing these less well-known villages really kind of knocking it out of the park. So, yeah, that was certainly a, a real eye-opener. And another uh, another sort of sub-region, Appalachia, to look out for is um, like savigny le and uh, pernon Vergeles. So around the hill of Corton, mm-hmm. you know, some mm-hmm. really lovely wines uh, coming from there as well. So yeah, sure. Well, there's yeah, plenty to plenty to look yeah. out for. But that's I think really key. You know, kind of what a, you know listeners listeners want to hear and know know what to go for because there is a lot to choose from, and you do need you know a bit of a bit of guidance and some you know a bit of yeah insider insider information. Um, and I think what we want to get onto next is buying wine on Primer. How uh, how people actually get hold of this wine, how they can buy it, and what what the campaign looks like for you guys. Before we do that, let's let's move on to the uh, Boisjolo Volnay. <laughs> uh, let's give it a, let's give it a taste. Um, you were you obviously just talk, just talking about the producer, um, but so yes, new new to you as of last year. You said the twenty two has been really really good for him. What should listeners be expecting to get? Uh, you know, from this wine, um, from from this producer um, for both you know this vintage and mm. which is the. Uh, duh, 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 duh. I don't know what this vintage. Nineteen. Is. 19. This is nineteen. Um, yeah. And from the twenty-two vintage uh, for the uh, for the Empereur releases. So healthy glass. There you go. It's a, yeah. <laughs> well done. Yeah. Good, yeah. good lad. Good I anticipated lad. there might be demand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I chose this wine for a couple of reasons. I, firstly and foremost, because I think it's absolutely delicious, um, which is as good a reason as you need to choose a wine. Secondly, because number of producers we spoke to including Charles here at uh, Boisjolot, when we were asking them, how do you compare the 22 vintage? What vintages is it like? A lot of producers uh, name-checked 2019 in there. You know, they said some of the aromatic profile and, and voluptuousness of the 19, but with the structure of the 20, that sort of thing. Some people said the sort of uh, acidity and freshness of 17, but again, the voluptuousness and aromatics of 19. So 19, looking at my tasting notes, kind of kept cropping up quite a lot as a a comparable vintage. Mm -hmm. I I think 22 is different from 19 overall. It's got an extra level of... an extra level of of structure and finesse and freshness. But, But there's certainly something 
similar. And and one thing I mentioned earlier was this rose petal, this recurrent rose petal note. Perhaps you can pick that up in the wine uh, on on the nose now. Um, It's beautiful kind of floral component, sort of like potpourri, crushed flowers, crushed petals. And I think that, you know, um, Eric is making some beautiful reds and whites. There's always a sort of delicacy to the perfume. Uh, the wines are never overworked. The oak use is sensitive, although now uh, Charles is 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 coming um, coming involved. He's intent on making the oak even more sensitive. So really, you know, expressing the fruit to its fullest. Um, lovely balance. The tannins are, are are very gentle, very fine grained here. Uh, I keep coming back to the perfumes. I mean, it's just a no, it's just a wine you want to keep your nose stuck in forever, frankly. Yeah, that's why I've probably smelt it like four. Five, yeah. five times already. It's absolutely, absolutely delicious. I haven't tried it yet. Well, also, what, I like the way you use the, the word delicacy because that's when, you know, in Burgundy, I guess Volnay in particular is really singing. It gets that balance between having delicacy but then also having, you know, depth and a sufficient amount to just continually come back to. And that contra or like combination is really mm. quite addictive. <laughs> and I think that's what gets like the Burgundy nuts really going. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's for me... It's the classic intensity, not density idea. You yeah, know, no. there's no weight on this wine. This is a wine which is all about energy, not mass. You know, you feel it in the cheekbones. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I love that in, in good red burgundy. It's, it's, um, it's, it's fascinating. It will develop. You know, this is young, 2019 Premier Cru. Um, Sontenot is a fascinating um, is a fascinating vineyard because technically uh, the vines are really over in Mosul. But as they sort of they, they become honorific Volnay because they are attached to Volnay, okay. and it, it makes a very high toned wine, I think. And you know, we were talking about red fruit earlier. You've really got that kind of red fruit compote in spades here. Um, the, we mentioned rose petals, but also you know a touch of violets there as well. Maybe a bit more spice coming through. It's uh, it's a it's an eminently drinkable wine. But obviously, you know, we're we're here at the expensive or more expensive than yes. burgundy now um so you 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 can't deny that you you do get what you pay for in burgundy it's not to say that you can't get incredible wines for less than this sort of 60 plus mm-hmm. pounds bottle but when you start getting into this bracket then you can really start to see what the fuss is about sure sure but i think even on the <clears throat> the price point of this wine um yeah you're right it is expensive but on the flip side you know, it is Premier Cru Volnay and on a good Volnay site as well, although typically the, the, the roots have sort of made their way elsewhere. But mm. it, for a really good site, it's actually not at a price point, which is not bad at all, which is, which is like getting offensive because mm. you can also find a sort of Premier Cru Volnay from a good site, which is getting up to sort of 200, 250 plus a bottle. And this mm. is still, you know, well under a hundred quid. So it's, Actually, in some ways, you know, it's all relative, isn't it? Really? Yeah, exactly. that's, that's exactly. relative. Yeah, that, that's the challenge, isn't it? With yeah. Burgundy, it's like yeah. you've always got a, a, um, something anchoring you to a stratospheric height, and so you don't really know where, where what represents value at mm. some stage. Yeah, true, very true. Um, and in terms of yeah, you know, just coming back to it, in terms of securing these oh, yeah, wines, of someone if someone's you know looking, for example, to buy this in the twenty twenty two, on Primer, yeah. as a concept, for those that don't know, could you just explain to yeah. your listeners what on Primer is, how it works, you know, where wines are stored, um, and kind of where, where the idea came from originally? And Absolutely. How it, how it started. Absolutely. So 
typically on Primeur was a way for the winemakers to recoup some of the costs of the growing season by selling um, a significant proportion of their wines in advance, in advance of bottling. And in order to incentivize buyers, and it was you know the merchants, to take up these allocations, they would be favorably priced. And this has really been the concept which has been around for a, a number of years, certainly as long as I've been in the wine trade and long, long before that. And the idea was that the merchants could then pass those wines on to their, their clientele and, you know, pass them on at the on-premier price. The idea being, of course, when the wines are bottled and subsequently shipped and released, that the prices will be more expensive. Yeah. So typically the reason to buy on-premier was in order to pay a better price and to allow the growers to recoup some of the costs of the uh, of the year. As things have developed, Ompremer has become, in Burgundy at least, sometimes the only opportunity you can buy these wines. When you're uh, considering the tiny production levels of some of the most vaunted Grand and Premier crews, they, you know, the demand is so huge. If you don't buy them on release, then the next time you might see them is on the secondary market in a year or two's time at considerably uh, higher prices. So that's why, because compared to, for example, Bordeaux on Primeur mm. campaigns, that, um, you know, Bordeaux, there's so much of it available on release and the secondary markets as, as well. You know, five, 10 years down the line, you can buy stuff. One, it's available. Two, it's actually not. You know, it's pretty well priced for what it is with a decade of age, but that certainly isn't the case with Burgundy due to the limited production and supply to start with. Yeah, but Burgundy um, unquestionably, you know, deserves very serious consideration when when looking at your on-premier purchases because, yeah, absolutely, it's not necessarily a case of having to buy it at a more expensive price later. It's You, you won't be able to see it at all, frankly. So, um, yeah, the idea is uh, every January, we have Burgundy Week in the UK where merchants will show off barrel samples. It's normally barrel samples because the wines, by and large, have yet to be bottled. Some will have been, but most won't have been. They will show off prepared barrel samples to press, to trade, to uh, private clients, etc., to restaurants or sommeliers. And they will effectively offer allocations of these wines and you will pre-order them. Typically, I think, most merchants, I know we and, and a number of others do, encourage a, a balanced buying strategy. So we, we we don't particularly like people coming in and just trying to order all of the most expensive, most sought after um, Grand Cru's. So, you know, to, to support growers, to take a balance of wines across different growers. And then once those orders are confirmed, normally the campaign will run into February, depending how much wine there is and what the demand is like. And then those wines will be shipped into the UK some uh, towards the end of the year. Much more typically, it'll be the following year that the wines will be shipped. And entirely up to you, of course, you can have those wines shipped over to the UK and then directly to your home, or you can keep the wines in bond. So that's probably a, worth unpacking as a concept. I think so, yeah, yeah. just to explain that a bit, yeah, yeah. So, um, in bond means that the wines go to a uh, bonded warehouse, which means that they uh, you don't pay the duty and VAT on the wines. Uh, they are stored uh, for you 
And when you choose to release them, then you are liable to pay the, the duty and VAT on the wines in order to have them delivered to your house. But obviously, this is useful in a, for a number of reasons. Firstly, because you're not, you're not paying the, the, the tax liabilities at the time of purchase. Um, also, of course, unless you're lucky enough to have a, a large seller at home or a, a number of euro cards in which to stuff your wines, <laughs> then you know not everyone has space to, to keep wines in, in good condition. So keeping the wines uh, for you is, is very helpful. It also means that they can age and then you can bring out the cases as and when they're ready to drink. The uh, the other benefit, of course, is that should you wish to liquidate some of your wine holdings, then uh, it's it's much easier to sell wines that are in bond, um, and at the same time, the the tax liabilities passes on to the buyer as well. So um, keeping wines in bond is is highly recommended for uh, expensive burgundies. Whether you intend to drink them or potentially you know sell some of them later on, you don't have to decide at the time. Um, but it, it just means that uh, everything is rather more uh, clean and clear cut mm-hmm. as and when you want mm-hmm. to do what you need to do. <clears throat> well, we'll wrap it there. Um, I think both Ben and I just want to say a huge, huge thank you uh, to yourself, Tom, uh, for coming on to the episode and also um, for just sharing all your pearls of wisdom on all things Burgundy and the 2022 vintage. Um, for anyone interested in um, Honest Grapes and the wines that we've tried today, We'll be posting a link to the website and individual links to the wines uh, in the description to the episode. Uh, and we will also be providing updates on our social media uh, on the tasting of Value Villages of Burgundy that Honest Grapes are going to be hosting, which is on the 23rd of January. Um, so stay tuned for updates and definitely get your tickets along to that. We'll be there. Um, and I guess a final thing to just say is that if you enjoyed this episode, Uh, Give it a like, link, like, subscribe on whatever channel you're on. Follow us on social media. Um, But for now, Ben and I will be back next week with another episode. Uh, Uh, But in the meantime, Tom, thank you so much. And welcome to the Premier League.